0: Hello, my name is Dr. Jim Doty, and I'm the host of the Into the Magic Shop podcast, where we explore the mysteries of the brain and the secrets of the heart. Today's guest is Hunter Biden, son of President Joe Biden. Uh, Today we're going to talk about his memoir, Beautiful Things, and also his history of growing up losing his mother and sister in a car accident of which he was grievously injured as well as his brother Bo, and also his years of abuse of alcohol and cocaine. And we're going to understand what it's been like growing up in the public space, if you will. But behind all of this is a human being striving to survive, and to address his own personal failings while moving forward in the world. Many of you may not know that Hunter is a graduate of Georgetown University as well as Yale Law School. He's been involved with a number of corporate entities but also has been on the board of the World Food Program as well as nominated for a position by Bill Clinton in the Commerce Department and also by George Bush to the amtrak board so let's get started now i hope you enjoy this conversation and i think all of us will learn a lot about not only tragedy our failings but how to move forward in our lives and now let's begin well hunter it's nice to uh chat with you again. Obviously, we've sort of been chatting back and forth for a while, but thanks for uh, being kind enough to be on this podcast. I I really appreciate it. You know, I know you've sort of been through the circuit with your book, and certainly I want to touch on some aspects of that, but more importantly, just to sort of talk about where you're at. You know, it's interesting because so many of us have significant struggles, and while they may not be completely private, they're certainly not on the uh, main stage, <laughs> if you will. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So, you know, I'm just, um, you know, wanted to ask you sort of about that a little bit. And I did mention your book, uh, Beautiful Things, a memoir, which, uh, you know, I think uh, has been fairly successful. And I think it also focuses a light on, you know, the reality that uh, as much as all of us like to put up a persona, A lot of people are suffering from addiction issues. So, maybe you can also first tell us, and although I've read the book, of course, sort of this idea of beautiful things. And what's actually interesting about that is the opening or introductory chapter to my book is called The Same (laughs) Things.
1: Yeah, I know. And it's a, a happy coincidence. Well, first of all, you know, thank you very much for. Asking me to do this, you know, um, and I've told you personally what a big fan I am of uh, your book, but not only your book, but your work and all that you do. So I'm really honored that you would have me on. The second, uh, by the way, Jim, there were at least 17 questions in that opening. (laughs) I'll go to the last one that I could remember, which was...
0: (laughs) I'm trying to keep uh, it simple for you. Yeah,
1: exactly. I'll I'll just speak from here on out. Um, I'll go to the last one first, which is Beautiful Things. And the the reason that the book that I named my book, Beautiful Things, is that when my brother was uh, in his last... Um, months of uh, his struggle with glioblastoma, which you know all about all too well. He and I spent even more time than we normally did, which was an enormous amount of time to begin with. And he started to lose his ability to uh, speak, not to, he, he was cognitively all there, but um, because of the radiation, his ability to form words was becoming more and more difficult. So we had a lot of shorthand, which we had with each other. And one of the things that he would always say to me was when we were sitting around, whether we were sitting at my parents' house and looking out over the lake, or whether we were on an airplane headed somewhere, he'd say, beautiful things, beautiful things. And what he meant by that was, he wanted me, and if, uh, if he were able to make it through, which he obviously did not, is to focus on the beautiful things in life. And he didn't mean material things at all. He meant moments, he meant people, he meant the things that actually really matter. Most people, or a lot of people, only fully appreciate towards the end of their life. And for my brother and I, it's something that we always appreciated, but it's something that he wanted to make certain that I never forgot, which are the beautiful things that surrounded me. My daughters, my family, the people that loved me, and also nature. Something that we both really spent a lot of time doing together um, is being in places that uh, that made us feel alive, and so that was the story behind the title for the book. But it's also kind of the story that's allowed me to get through this, as you said, very public appraisal of of Hunter Biden and all of my uh, shortcomings and and uh, and all of my struggles. That what I've come to realize through the process are in no way unique. And so I've turned it around and decided that, number one, one of the principles that I try to live by is to, you know, take responsibility for the things that I am responsible for. And, you know, not to be trite, but, you know, also realize the things that I am have the ability to uh, change in my life and realize the ones that I don't. And so those are the things that I've been able to focus on. And I've been able to do it in a very public way because you know what, I'm not alone. And I I was not um, shocked by it because I I knew going into this and being public about my addiction that I am, uh, you know, I'm just one of millions out there that suffer from this and, and that I don't know anyone that has not had a family member or a friend or themselves that hasn't struggled with addiction or the or the uh, results of an addiction. So
0: Well, you know, that's what I would say. I mean, look, we're frail, fragile human beings. Uh, I've attended many AA and other types of meetings uh, yeah. myself. Regardless of the external appearance of things, so many of us struggle, and I think certainly right now, I mean, prior to the pandemic, a lot of people were suffering with stress, anxiety, uh, depression, questions of self-worth, and it's certainly only been, you know, exacerbated by that. But I think you're absolutely right. So many families or individuals get lost in hiding the reality of their own addiction, and the problem, of course, is the more you hide from the light, uh, the darker it gets. And I think, uh, you know, this is one of the sources of suffering. You know, there's a quote in your book uh, from Hemingway. It says, the world breaks out, everyone, and afterwards, many are strong in the broken places. And I think that's really a a metaphor for your book. I don't know if you've heard of something called kintsugi. No, I have not. It's interesting. And it goes through, uh, it's a Japanese uh, concept. And it's typically aligned with something called wabi-sabi. And uh, (laughs) I know this is a conversation about you, but I'll just share it with you because I think uh, you'll immediately connect to it. So in the uh, 15th and 16th century, when uh, pottery, uh, which was very expensive to make and, you know, very few people had uh, access to it, a piece would break and typically they would just try to glue it together and make it look like it wasn't broken but ultimately they started gluing it together with golden glue which would highlight the brokenness of the piece of pottery but also acknowledging that the challenges in our lives the things that caused us to break are to be honored and cherished because it gives us great insight in the process and uh frankly we're all broken in some way or another you know, I mentioned this concept of wabi-sabi, which is this idea of the nature of impermanence, imperfection, and and incompleteness, which again, uh, I think all of us can relate to. You know, I know there's, uh, in the book you talked about, I, I guess we could call it a predilection within your family of alcohol abuse. From your perspective, and I know you mentioned, I think you took your first drink at, was it eight or nine? Yes. And I'm going to give you two questions, which may translate into to seven. <laughs> uh, obviously, and I, uh, you know, I know you've talked about this odd infinitum, you know, your tragedy as a child, although on the one hand, it seems as though you didn't remember all of the events that happened, but clearly it had an impact. That being said, uh it seems as though you were very blessed to have a father and a stepmother and relatives and family that completely embraced you and supported you through this uh, tragedy. But did you really come through that tragedy unscathed? Uh reflecting back at this point and do you think that contributed to sort of the path you were on or was it that plus genetics or yeah. actually do you have any fucking idea at all?
1: Yeah. <laughs> and by the way, that's, that's another... That's another um, grand principle that I've adopted. Is that um, the the truth of the matter is that I have no fucking idea <laughs> about, about anything. I'm trying to understand, but one thing I've learned is that I I, I never truly will fully understand. And uh, but that doesn't mean I don't stop trying to. And um, you probably know him, uh, Doc, but uh, Doctor uh, Gabor Mate.
0: Oh uh, he's actually a good friend of mine, actually. Yeah,
1: exactly. And I I, I knew he would be. <laughs> you, you know all the cool people. You and hanging out with the Dalai Lama. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I will yeah. tell you though, there yeah. are also some not so cool people I know. Which, uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh yeah.
1: We're, we're, we have those people in common, I bet. Yeah. So um, you know, I had always been of the opinion in my struggles against what um, you know, which primarily alcohol. Alcohol is the, um, in the last stages of my addiction, it became a real just minute by minute struggle with crack cocaine, but alcohol is the root of all of it. And obviously many people don't understand that it's also the most dangerous drug, at least in my uninformed medical opinion, it was the most dangerous drug to me in every way. But Dr. Mate, um, I saw him uh, do a Ted talk, and where he talked about his um, work with addiction, I believe in Vancouver or or Toronto. Yeah. I, yeah, and yeah, and he made the point that of the addicts over a twelve year period of time that he spent uh, the most time working with, not a single one of them was free of uh, significant trauma in their life, and that at the root of all addiction, including um, the one that seems. Uh, kind of silly that he talks about in his own life and his shopping obsession with certain types of recordings of music but um that all addiction has a root in trauma and now it also may have and it seems from anecdotal evidence and some of the studies that done have been done a root in your you know a predisposed genetic makeup that you may have I know for for me, no one in my immediate family had a active addiction issue. The reason is my dad chose not to drink my mother would have a glass of wine every once in a while my mom or my brother chose not to drink but for me I'd never wanted to blame the accident. I viewed it kind of as a weakness uh, they say oh I drink because well you know one of the things that we learn in aA, from a lot of the old timers, which I don't necessarily um, believe anymore, is like, you drank because you're a drunk. You don't need to know any more than that. And um, what I found is, is that when I was willing to explore the idea that was spurred by me watching Gamora Mate and his talks, and then I watched and read a lot of other things that he had to say, is that unless we're willing to treat the trauma and understand it, We're always looking to relieve it. And at least I was always looking to relieve something that I refused to even necessarily acknowledge. And until I was ready to acknowledge it, it remains untreated. And I know my brain has one solution to discomfort and pain, and that is a drink or a drug. That's what it learned, um, how to cope. And it's an incredibly effective coping mechanism at first. In the immediate, it is a, uh, you, you want to feel better. I can tell you one way that I know how to feel better. It is to um, to take a, a, a swig of vodka and all of a sudden you, you feel a hell of a lot better until, for me at least, it becomes immediately catastrophic. For the first time in my life, beginning a few years ago, I started to explore how much uh, of that residual trauma existed in me. And it's been a uh, really liberating process, actually. In um, a lot of my memories of that time, which I didn't know whether they were stories told to me over and over again, or whether they were actual memories, I've been able to understand them more and um, and kind of recognize that actual, truly traumatic event of being in a in a car accident where. Your mother and your sister are brutally killed. and my brother and myself, both of us severely injured um, and almost killed as little kids. And I've been able to talk about it more and I'm able to be open about it. I'm able to kind of explore it without having to just shut it down as something that happened and we move on because people don't move on, you know it, it, it's stored somewhere in your body and your your body talks to your your brain and and I know what my brain says.
0: Don't run away run away yeah well you know but I, I i think uh that's absolute truth and one of the things i've uh found um oh a uh, question for you did you see the uh gift of trauma movie that Gabor did no i haven't seen the movie oh no. the reason i say that is i'm actually in that <laughs> oh okay well there you go <laughs> uh but i <laughs> but anyway. Well then you uh, let Dr.
1: Amate know how much of a big, a huge I'm almost as big a fan of his as I am of yours. Jim. Oh well
0: that's yeah. that's that's kind of yeah. you. Uh he's a, he's a wonderful guy. In fact, he's gonna be on the podcast, I think, sometime in the near future. But uh, you know, this idea of trauma though, uh I think what so many of us don't appreciate is that we have a tendency to either dissociate from it or uh you know, consciously not want to deal with it since, you know, many of us, the feeling is, well, this is distracting, it's impeding me from going forward. But of course, as you know, it also sets the stage, um, you know, for disaster. I think that this also, this concept of shame and embarrassment, because, you know, from my own experience, uh, you know, there's a subgroup of people who even though my book acknowledges a lot of pain and suffering, somehow think that um, I've overcome it all and everything is hunky-dory. And uh, I I think that, as you acknowledge, it never leaves you in the sense of the things that drive you to your addiction. Uh, I think, obviously, as further time passes, it gets easier not to head in that direction, takes the shame away, takes your feelings of inadequacy away, and lulls you into the belief that you're better uh, because of that.
1: Yeah. This is how, <laughs> this is how my um, my brain is still healing. What is the the, the Japanese term again that you use? Oh, uh,
0: Kent Sugi, K I N
1: T S U G I. The reason I wanted to be able to get it right is that what a beautiful concept. And it really, I mean, when you described it to me, it uh, Literally, I'm working on a huge painting right now, and it's filled with with gold. And I've been trying to figure out why these gold um, uh, seams run through my paintings. And one of the things that I've learned to do, and I've had to do it um, in the middle of the eye of a, a gigantic hurricane that has nothing to do with me, but everything to do with me um, in the way in which it obviously... Can impact my life, and the incredible thing is, is that um, you know another. I wish I I always threaten that I'm going to learn aikido one day, and I've read everything that I can about aikido. And but there's this concept of of taking your opponent's energy, and the highest form of uh, aikido is to be able to deflect and use the energy of your opponent for your own self defense, whatever however harming the the opponent and that idea of absorbing um, someone else's negative energy and using it to produce something that is a beautiful thing or that is a productive and constructive thing it's like kintsugi is the idea that the crack can um, become a, a a beautiful part of who you are and that's that's literally how i've been trying to to live my life Because I've had to learn how to do that. Not only in the eye of the storm, but is um, as the focal point of an enormous amount of hatred and anger that's out there. that's directed at me, but not intended necessarily just for me. Um, It's intended for my father. It's intended for my family. It's intended for um, the the other. And uh, what I found is, is that, I've been able to look at those traumatic experiences in my life. The shame and that I and guilt that I feel um, about some of the uh, behaviors that I uh, exhibited when I was in active addiction, things I'm not proud of. Um, I've been able to be as incredibly open about all of them and transparent about all of them as possible. And what I found is it gives me an enormous, enormous power is that there is nothing that anyone can say about me uh, that I know that can harm me anymore. Um and so I am uh, you know, I work at that every day because it still keeps coming. But um it's a uh it's an incredibly powerful concept to realize that your greatest, what you perceived as your greatest weaknesses really actually are your greatest strengths. Um, And that's not a a glib trait, you know, a cliche that I'm I'm living example of that, in my opinion. Yeah,
0: you know, I think, uh, obviously, you had no choice in some way, in the sense that uh, you're out there. And, and, you know, this is, again, I I think, a a huge lesson for people is because so many of us um, hide who we really are, you know whether it's at work or what, even to our spouses, you know, we want to have an image of how we want to be seen. And unfortunately, there are mechanisms to allow that to happen for you not to be honest with yourself. And then, of course, there's always something missing. When there's a part of you that isn't there, that whole of you, and that includes the shame, the failures, and everything else, it's hard to be loved completely because you have all these hidden parts and the hiding of it exacerbates the shame. It's really difficult. Uh, And you know, it's funny, I give these talks all the time, as you know, and sometimes, and I'm fairly emotional, I'll I'll get up and my voice will crack and uh, I'll shed a tear. And it always amazes me because when you show that degree of vulnerability, it sets everyone else free. So as soon as I start tearing up or whatever, suddenly you hear everyone sort of cry or whatever. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh On the one hand, people uh, want to hide from that, but that's what makes you human, and that's what people want to connect with. And I think it's it, it's sort of this confusion of how we think it's important for people to see us versus the reality that people want to see all of us, and that's... In some sense, the brokenness uh, that made us who we are today. Yeah, and
1: you know, there's one thing that I learned in the program from is that guilt is a very appropriate emotion and feeling to have. It is proper to feel guilty when you do something wrong. Shame, on the other hand, is something that you have to release yourself from. And I see it as a two as, as two steps and you know the program teaches us this at least it taught me this is that you have to acknowledge the things that you've done that have hurt other people you know one of the things that i did in my addiction the thing that, 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 that my greatest sin in addiction was the fact that i became completely unavailable to my children and i became completely remote and 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 not present for them and what a what a incredibly traumatic thing for a teenager Um, My girls were teenagers at the time, and one was in college. And that's something that they're going to live with for their whole lives. And it's proper for me to feel guilty about that. I can't live in that shame, because for me, what shame does is if it, shame implies to me secrecy. It's something that I hold myself, and that sometimes I don't even acknowledge to myself. When you said, you know, we don't even share with our spouses the fact of the matter is, is that often what we don't, we don't even acknowledge it to ourselves. It just bubbles up and that that shame comes rising up in a situation where you can't be tight, but all of a sudden, like at the worst time ever, you decide, God, I can't stand this. I need a drink or whatever it is or whatever is in front of you or whatever pill's in front of you. And everybody has that, uh, you know, I mean, everything in... Uh, Everything that I need to change the state of how I'm feeling right now is within probably three minutes from me, even though this is a dry household and there's no illicit drugs here. But I know I I, I know how to find it. And so with the incredible gift that they didn't realize that they gave me in attacking me is that I was able to take what I was ashamed of and own it. Now I own it. It's, there's no secrets there are no secrets with me everybody knows now if all things were being equal <laughs> maybe i would have been able to do that in a much more um uh, gentle and, <laughs> and and uh and less like is you know pictures of me being shared on digital billboards 400 feet tall by you know gas stations in in nashville i you know what i mean like the fact of the matter is is that's the way it was and you know what I got out of bed the next morning. I came to paint. I have baby Bo sitting by my side, and I have a partner in Melissa. They came to this relationship with full understanding of who I was, and and I have no shame over it. And I've been working as hard as I possibly can to make amends for the things that I do have um, reason to feel guilty.
0: Yeah, you know, it's uh, it's interesting. I, I, I think you'll see the example here is that, again, you know, for so many people, they're so afraid of being found out that they have flaws, right, <laughs> or <laughs> weaknesses. And I give the analogy that, you know, I'll see patients in the emergency room who English is their second language, but when they're sick or suffering, they immediately revert back to their first language. Yes. And the analogy to me of this is that when you, know, you hide shame inside of you and you're so afraid, when the stress or the anxiety or uh, the trauma occurs, the natural way which you've soothed yourself since childhood is through alcohol or some other substance. And that's why, you know, when you're stressed and anxious, it's so easy to reach uh, for that soother uh, because you automatically revert back to that thing from childhood, which made you feel okay. And uh, this is, it's a very, very difficult uh, thing uh, to overcome. You mentioned Melissa. Maybe you could just, obviously, I know a little bit, but maybe you could just share uh, with those who are listening how you met the past and uh, frankly the nature of unconditional acceptance yeah
1: you know it's a story that would make any parent nervous for their child <laughs> which is um you know uh even when they're when their kid is um as i was 49 years old when i met melissa is that i met someone we're going to get married and the fact of the matter is is that Melissa came to me at a time in which I was at my lowest but also my most vulnerable and without knowing it I believe that what I was really open to was being saved for the first time in a long time and within literally the first three hours of meeting melissa in which i looked into her eyes and i don't know what it was that um that made me instantly fall in love and that's a thing i can tell you <laughs> and uh, uh and and i'm not the first to say that's a thing and i instantly felt the, the connection uh that i hadn't felt to anyone in a very long time outside of my family and, and uh but in a very different way and it was a familiarity, but at the same time, it was uh, in the form of someone that uh, that clearly I had never witnessed before. And within the hour, I told Melissa, I said, "You know, I think I'm in love with you," <laughs> and I know that's not a very good way to start a first date, but uh, but I have to tell you something. I'm addicted to crack cocaine, and she turned to me and she said, "Well, that's going to stop now," and it did. <laughs> Within a um you know, within several days from of then, I had put down a drug that I never thought that I would be able to put down and and that I was addicted to on a literally minute by minute basis. Every fifteen minutes if I wasn't smoking crack, I was looking for crack. And if I wasn't looking for crack, I was you know, smoking crack. I mean, it was a cycle that went on and on and on. And people that have suffered from addiction at that level understand it. It is the the most frightening uh, space I've ever been in in my life. And she just looked at me and said, that's going to stop. Now, that's when the real hard work began. That's when people usually, out of self-preservation, say, this is too much for me. Because what it required of her were the things that, very few people, let alone someone you just met, are willing to do, which is she took my wallet, she took my phone, she wiped all of the numbers that didn't have the last name Biden from my phone, she took my computer and wiped my computer, she took the keys to the car, she took my pants, I mean, literally, <laughs> and babysat me. Get over that first three days, unlike alcohol, it's it the that leaves your system pretty quickly. And um then it's just about the obsession. But if you can get over that first time, that that time, you have a really good shot if you're in good company. And then for the next months, I mean, I haven't you know, I didn't carry a wallet for the first year that Melissa and I were together. Not because I didn't trust myself eventually at some point, but it felt like why why even why even tempt myself? that's the hard work that people don't understand that is done not just by the addict but the people that love them and what and I, and I really want to say this too because it's really important it's not that the people that loved me weren't willing to do that work before they did they did so many times and and I failed and it can become such heartbreaking experience for people that love someone who has a problem with addiction, because God, it's hard to disassociate the the fact that they're choosing their addiction over you. And one time and you, and you forgive and you move on. And, and, but the second time, and then the, the, then I know what I would do is that I became more ashamed of it. Became a secret. I didn't want to tell anybody. And then I'd feel this guilt and shame over the secret. And it would cause an enormous amount of anxiety. All of those insecurities that are maybe the result of trauma or otherwise and your genetic predisposition, and it all builds up and all builds up. And you're driving to work and you go by the package store and you somehow pull your car over and you know this dumbest thing ever. But you pull out a $10 bill and you buy a, you know, a pint of Smirnoff bottle, a, a, a plastic bottle of Smirnoff to tuck in your back pocket for the day. And then you're off to the races. Yep. And then it's just the same thing. And so whatever the reason, whatever it was, I know that I was given a gift that no one uh, necessarily deserves. And and it came in the form of Melissa, which brought me back to my girls. My, my, my incredible daughters brought me back to my mom and dad, brought me back to my sister, my uncles and aunts, the people that love me. And I've been rebuilding that since. And, uh, and today, like many days, I wake up and I don't even have to do a gratitude prayer because it's just literally in front of me. I walk out. Baby Bo wakes me up at usually like 5.30 a.m. But it's the most beautiful time of my day. And we get up together. We go into the backyard. It's dark now. So we, we, uh, we wait until the sun comes up around 6.30. And we look at the birds and we uh, sit and eat our raspberries and, and our strawberries that we cut up for them. And it's the most amazing, beautiful, if I find won the lottery, um, I, I couldn't have hoped for more.
0: You know, it's wonderful to hear that uh, because that's, uh, in some ways, what is there when you're actually present, not thinking about the next drink. One of the things I wanted to, uh, you know, because I know there's a tendency with, you know, a conversation like this uh, to focus on, you know, uh, the horrible things or the the struggles you've been through. But, you know, I'd also like to just comment on all the good stuff you did, even in the face of this. Right. Uh, I mean you went to Georgetown, you ended up uh, completing at Yale, and then you were involved in another, a number of projects, which I think are, are deep, profound, helpful. And uh, I think it also shows you in the face of sort of the bad stuff, you really continue to, as best you could try to be of service. And I'm thinking of, uh, the World Food Bank and uh, uh, some of the other work uh, you've done. Maybe you could just comment on that.
1: Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I think that is uh, um, for anybody who goes through this public process of, you know, shaming that I have gone through is that uh, there's this perception that they're very one dimensional, is that the, the thing that you know about them, that they were a crack addict, or the thing that you know about them is that they were an alcoholic. And I've, I've let that go. Um, as being able to change that in any way. Um, for the people that want to believe that, we're going to continue to believe that. But one of the things that uh, I'm really proud of, I'm really proud of the fact that um, I have spent a, uh, my adult life thinking that the highest and best use of my time was in service to other people. And I learned that um, uh, primarily from my parents my parents my grandparents um i I learned that primarily from the jesuits that taught me at georgetown and when i was an undergrad and and the uh the people that i worked with when i i left georgetown to join the jesuit volunteer corps out in portland oregon i learned it from the people that i went to yale law school with and worked on defense, um, uh, appellate defense work for people that were wrongly convicted um, of, of murder and were facing the death penalty. It's something that I've never um, not participated in. You know, right now, uh, Melissa's down with my sister at a, um, a a woman's shelter in Los Angeles. It's something that we constantly are a part of. The World Food Program, U.S. is uh, in support of the UN World Food Program, which is the largest humanitarian organization in the world, I was chairman of the board, serve over 72 million meals a day to children around the world. We're at every disaster, whether man-made or um, environmental in the world, we're the first people to land, uh, usually only um, preceded by US Marines around the world that are deployed from naval ships, whether it's a war zone or whether it's a hurricane or a typhoon. And for me, um, I look at what my dad does is one of the highest forms of, of uh, I mean, he's approached politics his whole life is it being one thing is being able to be a voice for people that um, that can't have a voice and being able to be a um, of literally hands on service to people So literally figure out a way to, to take a, a, a meal to a hungry man or woman or child. And um, <laughs> it's it, I, I feel funny even talking about it because as you know it's the most gratifying thing in the world. there's literally it's all selfish you know I mean what the, at base what you realize is by doing for others I never feel better in my life than when i'm doing something for something for someone else in need and um and i'm i'm no, hero in this at all. But I know the work that you've done to show that is, um, you know, with altruism and, and service is something that is ultimately comes down to it makes you healthier. It makes you um, it, it, it makes you a better person.
0: No, I think you're right. I, I mean, you know, the Dalai Lama says uh, uh, it's the only time when it's okay to be selfish. Uh, because yeah. when you give when you care, it comes back to many fold. And also, as you point out, it uh, does have a huge impact on your health. It's interesting. I, I was at a longevity conference and there was a speaker there and he talked about, and you probably heard of these blue zones mm-hmm. where, you know, people routinely live to over hundred. And his argument was that a great part of this has to do with diet. And on some level, of course, uh, diet, moderate exercise, limited alcohol use, et cetera, is important. But the interesting thing is, which he didn't mention and which I brought up, was that by far, far and away, the most important thing to living a long uh, life is uh, social connection and deep relationships, period, by far, far and away. And uh, it's interesting, there's a study out of Harvard that's somewhat misogynist because it followed men for almost 80 years from, you know, when they were undergraduates. And again, uh, that same reality has uh, proven to be the case. So this idea of connection, of uh, caring, of service, frankly, it's what we were designed to do by our very nature. Now, let me ask you another question, which might be a little uncomfortable. Uh, but, but I don't think anything at this point maybe uncomfortable. Yeah. <laughs> uh you know, I, 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 know you've talked about your three children from your first marriage. You've talked about Bo now, but there was another child in between here. Was there not?
1: Yeah, I did not have a, a relationship, um, there. And, um, is uh, something that because of the nature of it and the the protection of the identity of the child is something I don't talk about publicly.
0: Okay. Well, I I just thought, though, that, uh, you know, I'm not interested in the identity of the child at all, of course, but uh, uh, I just wanted to sort of acknowledge that, and uh, I know that probably occurred sort of in the depths of your own challenges. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Um, but we, um, have a, uh, way in which that I've been able to be supportive without, um, making it difficult for the, uh, mom and the family to be kind of subjected to the same level of, of, uh, heat that I am. Yeah. So I just stay away from talking about it.
0: No, no, I, listen, I, I, yeah. I understand that maybe we can end this on, uh, telling me what, uh, what do you think is next for you?
1: Well, I'm totally focused on my art. Um, I am, uh, I, I continue to write, but it is, uh, for me, it's just a kind of collecting my thoughts and my energy and putting it down on paper for whatever that comes next. But I've always done that. But I literally am, I'm, I paint and I'm getting ready for a show in New York. And um, and I am uh, also, you know, a, uh, I spend a, an enormous amount of time uh, with baby Bo, um, here, which is a beautiful, beautiful thing. You know, one of the things that uh, they, pandemic allowed, which is a gift at least that I saw it as a gift in is that, um, you know, it was just the three of us, um, for, for, uh, a long, long period of time and since he was born and I'm trying to stretch that out as long as possible, but I'm also working with, um, uh, some people on some of the ideas as I had, as you said, related to, to um, uh, service and being of service to others. I'm going to keep that to myself until I'm ready to actually, um, you know, talk sure. about it more publicly. But it's been um, the ability to focus on my art is, um, is something that I'm forever grateful for and something that I'm going to continue to try to do as long as I possibly can.
0: Well, listen, uh, uh, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Uh, Hopefully we can get together one of these days.
1: Uh, (laughs) Soon enough. Thanks, Jim.
0: Again, thank you for being with us today. The Into the Magic Shop podcast can be found where you find your most popular podcasts. Or you can find us at intothemagicshop.com.